nothing seems to be right. And that's the question, one of the questions that I want to talk through, wanna, I want to help you think through as we look at Galatians 4. So let's read the passage, and then we'll pray. Galatians 4, 27 begins. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than, the one, than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning. And Lord, you know each and one of our lives. You know each and one of our experiences. You know what each of us is going, are going through even more intimately and deeply than we know it ourselves. Because you are sovereign and you know why we're going through what we're going. Father, we need your help. Forgive us for coming to church and not coming to want to meet with you and be in your presence. Forgive us for coming for somebody else. Forgive us for coming just to, because it's just what we do, and forsake the fact that we're meeting with the King of Kings. Father, your word is good, and it's profitable, and it's helpful. And so I pray, Lord, that it would bear fruit in our lives, that we would be men and women who live by faith in you, even when we can't see it, and even when it doesn't feel like it, when our experience and our emotions don't match what your word says, Lord, that we would live and walk in faith according to your promises. Would you help us this morning? Would you open our eyes? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All of Galatians, right, has been about calling people to live by faith. Now, what does it mean to live by faith? If you had a friend, right, you're sitting with a friend who's not a Christian, and they ask you, well, you talk a lot about faith. How do you define faith? Well, maybe one of the ways you would do that is, oh, you look at the Bible, right? Hebrews 11 tells us the definition of faith, and this is what Hebrews 11 one says. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So one way we know what is to live to live by faith is, well, what's the opposite of living by faith? The opposite of living by faith is living by sight, we know that the definition of faith is the conviction of things not seen. So when we live according to only and primarily what we see, we're not living by faith. Because faith is the conviction of things not seen. So what does it look like to live by faith is not to primarily live by sight, but to live by the hope that we have in Jesus. Faith is a confidence in that which we cannot experience or see or taste right now. It's the hope that we have the assurance of the hope that we'll have in Jesus. So if we're going to be people who live by faith, we don't rely solely in what we see in front of us today. We trust God first and foremost, in spite sometimes of what we see. There's many ways we do this. One of the clearest ways that you do this, and all of us do this, is living by works, right? So Galatians has been 
uh, Paul and Galatians has been fighting against living by works as if your works and bring you anything. Because the reality is, you and I, we did not see Jesus on the cross. You and I, you and I we did not see Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you. You did not see Jesus obeying the law perfectly. You have to believe and you have to trust. But what you can see, right, you can see your own deeds. You can see how often you read your Bible, how many verses you have memorized, how often you serve your neighbor. You can see how well you're doing, how often you attend church. These are things that you can't see. And it's very easy to live by sight and say, well, I'm doing well because I'm doing all these things. Look at my resume. Look at how well I'm doing. And then forget the main thing, which is that you cannot see. You cannot see Jesus. You cannot see him crucified. You have to believe with, with faith. It's easy to live by sight. It's harder to live by faith. But there's other things, other ways in which we live by sight instead of faith. We're going to look at two other ones this morning. My warning to you is that if you evaluate everything basically only in what you see, only in what you experience, it's going to prove to be a great hindrance to living by faith and being faithful to God. So let's walk through our passage together. Verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All right, what is this from? If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know, well, this is, Paul didn't just come up with this on the spot. This is Paul actually alluding, and if you're in your Bibles, you oftentimes, so my Bible has a little A next to it, and you look down and it says A, Isaiah 54.1. Paul is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 54. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah 54, so go back in your Bibles to the Old Testament, Isaiah 54. And as you turn to, let me give you some context of what's happening with Isaiah, because Isaiah is a hard book. The context is that Isaiah is prophesying to Israel of incoming judgment, incoming destruction of Judah. That's what the first 39 or so chapters in Isaiah are all about. There's judgment coming from God. Repent. And this is what's coming to you, the destruction of Judah. You will be taken over. You will be exiles from your land. You will be slaves in a land that you do not know. But Isaiah doesn't just prophesy persecution. Isaiah also looks forward to the day when Israel will be delivered. Right? So chapter 40 is the turning point. And then we get to Isaiah 53. If you know Isaiah 53 is writing all about the suffering servant, the one who will come and bring salvation to the people. Talks all about Christ who will deliver us from our transgressions and make us righteous. So that's chapter 53. Now we turn to chapter 54, talking to the church and what this salvation means for God's people. And Isaiah 54, 1 reads, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. All right, so you see how Paul is looking back to Isaiah and quoting Isaiah and making a point from this. But first we have to ask ourselves, okay, first, what does it mean in Isaiah? What does Isaiah mean when he's writing in Isaiah 54? Whenever there's New Testaments quoting the Old Testament, one helpful thing for you to do is, okay, clearly Paul is using it for a reason, but let's go back to Isaiah 54. What does it mean 
What does Isaiah 54 mean in its context? What does Paul mean in its context? What does it now mean for us in our context? So that's what we're going to take a second to do. What does Isaiah 54 1 mean? What did Isaiah mean to write? What is the authorial intent? Well, remember, God is speaking to Israel. God is speaking to his chosen people. And Israel, again, is going to be exiled. They will be, they will be taken down. This, Judah will be destroyed. Israel will be like the barren one, the barren woman who cannot bear, who will be desolate. There will be no good in Israel because it will be taken down. Normally, right, the barren woman is not one in a position to rejoice. But what is God saying? Isaiah 54 is telling, sing, O barren one, rejoice, for your children will be more than the one who has a husband. Okay, Israel is in a position where they are suffering, where they will be where they have suffered judgment for their sins, and God is telling them, you will suffer, you will not suffer forever. Your suffering will have an end. Though it seems, right, you will be in exile, you will be slaves, it seems like I have forgotten you. The truth is, I have not forgotten you. You will be able to rejoice because salvation is coming. You will experience my steadfast love. I encourage you to read chapter 54 this week because that whole chapter is just very tender. Very, very tender. It's God speaking to his people, to Israel, as his wife. show you really quick. I should have stayed there. But Isaiah 54. Look at verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. For the mount, verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. All right, his people are his chosen ones, his bride, his special possession. And this should just remind you, all of the, all of the Bible is pointing to the fact that his people are his chosen one. When you think about Ephesians 5, right, and you think about God and the church, and Jesus dying for her bride. When you think about Hosea, right? And God telling Hosea to take an unfaithful wife as a picture of how God is going to redeem unfaithful Israel. All of it is a picture of God's love for his bride, for the church, for your people. It's as if God has always had a plan to bring his people to himself. And so God is telling them, Though they feel like they're desolate, though they feel like they're all alone, though they're oppressed, they're under captivity, God would redeem them. He is going to bless them. He is going to restore them to a place of safety. And he's going to do that, not just physically, because he had, Israel actually was delivered from exile, but eventually they will deliver, be delivered from their sins. They will be forgiven. Their iniquities will be done once and for all. So God's people can rejoice because salvation is coming. Let me ask you, though. Does it ever feel like God has forgotten you? Does it ever feel like God has turned his back on you? Israel felt that. God had to remind them that he was not going to leave them alone, that he was going to bless them despite of what their eyes could see. Because the truth is, many of you look at your lives, and you see your trials, you see the things that you don't have, 
And you're tempted to think that God has deserted you. That he has forgotten about you. Well, if that's you, if that's you this morning, first let me encourage you by this. This is a common experience in the Christian life. God's people experience this often. Israel struggles with this. David, King David, feared that God would abandon him. And he would always remember God's faithfulness. But think of all, I want you to think, think of the examples of barrenness in the Bible, okay? All the women who are barren. And just consider, there's a theme in all of Scripture of women who are barren, who could not bear children, who were desolate, who thought that God had left them all alone and had turned their backs on them, and God was faithful to them. There's countless stories of this. It seems like almost every major story starts this way, right? So you have Sarah. We've looked at Sarah and Abraham, right? Sarah couldn't have children. She had to wait until she was 90 years old to have a child. You have then they had Isaac, son of the promise. His wife, Rebecca, also couldn't have children. And then you have Isaac. You had Esau and Jacob. Jacob's wife, Rachel, it was his chosen wife, also was barren and couldn't have children. But there's more too, right? Manoah, Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, couldn't bear children either for a while. You think of Hannah, right? The wife of Elkanah, who would eventually be Samuel's mother, who prayed to God that God would give her a child. Elizabeth in the New Testament, who would give birth to John the Baptist. Okay, there's a theme of barrenness in Scripture, And God had to work miraculously to bring life when man could not. Right? It's as if if God had to show that it depends on him and him alone and not on what man can do. Because when men are incapable of bringing life, God cannot fail. All of this leads us to Jesus, right? So you have Jesus' mother who wasn't barren in the true sense, but could not bear a child because she had not been with a man. And yet God said, I will be the one who acts. Man will not bring the Savior of the world. It is me who will do this. I will bring it. This is my plan to bring Jesus into the world. Jesus was not brought by man's doing. God had to bring man into the world. By the way, Mary was not perpetually a virgin, all right? So uh, the Catholic Church is wrong on that. But that's beside the point. So what do you do when God when you feel like God has forgotten you? Okay, what do you feel like when you when God when it feels like God has turned his back on you? Well, you remember what is true. You remember what is true. That though God may seem far away, he has promised to always care for his children. God never deserted Sarah. God never deserted Rachel or Hannah or Elizabeth. And neither will he forget you if you're in Christ. If your hope is in Jesus, then you're safe. He has already dealt kindly with you. The fact that you know and you're sitting here and you can hear from God's word is a gift from God. Not many get this privilege. Many people in this world are perishing without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So count yourself blessed that the fact that you get to hear and you have a Bible in your possession is such a gift. You get to know the God of the universe. That's all that you need. Whatever else you think you're lacking, you don't need that as much as you need God. To rest in the promise that God will deal kindly with his children and has dealt kindly with you. So that's Isaiah 54. All right? God is going to deal kindly with Israel. He will save them from exile. 
Now, how is Paul using it now in our passage? <clears throat> well, Paul clearly is looking back to Sarah and Hagar. So we've looked about, we looked at Abraham, the son of the promise, the son of the flesh, and is applying this illustration to Sarah and Hagar. So Sarah could not have children. Hagar had the child of flesh. And the illustration is clear, right? Though Sarah felt like God had deserted her, like there was no way that God would actually bring us under the promise through Sarah because it seemed impossible. Our eyes, their eyes could not see how God could actually make that happen. Her children would actually be more blessed than the children of the slave one, of the one who could have children. God remembered the promise that he had made to Sarah and fulfilled his promise to her to make her the mother of the promise. God was the one with the gracious plan. Which brings us now to today. How does this apply to us? Well, you're sitting here, right, and you've heard about God has promised to bless his people and care for his children, and yet it doesn't always seem that way. A lot of you have been praying for things for a long time that haven't come to fruition. You still don't have. The person that you long to be healed is still not better. You have good desires, right? You have good desires. You want to serve God in certain ways, and yet many of your desires are still unfulfilled after many, many years. And then not only that, you're not getting the things that you're praying for, and then the wicked are getting those things that you so desperately want and you see. They're getting the blessings that you so desperately desire. You see the wicked prospering over here who are far from God and they get everything that you think that you need and here you are faithfully serving God and you feel like God has abandoned you. It's not answering your prayers. It's not giving you the things that you need. It's giving you trials and suffering. So what is it? What is the thing that your heart longs for? Maybe it's friendships, right? And when you're in school and in college, that's a very easy thing to long for, friendships. Maybe you're seeking for a godly spouse, and it seems like God has turned his back on you, right, and hasn't given you the thing that you've wanted. Maybe it's children or more children. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's more money. And what do you do when God doesn't give you those things? And when he gives it to others instead, what do you do? Well, your temptation is to evaluate God's faithfulness on results. Okay, live by sight instead of faith. So when you, when you evaluate God's faithfulness on what you can't see, right? And then you see the things that the wicked have, and you're tempted to do the things that the wicked are doing in order to receive the things that you so desperately want. You take matters into your own hands. And two weeks ago, we saw how poorly that goes for us. So this is one of the ways in which you live by sight and not by faith. You focus on what you can't see. You're pragmatic. You focus on results and results only. You see the trials that you're having. You see that others are doing well. And you're quickly to think that God has forgotten about you and he's not for you. That somehow he's decided to bless him or her. But think about this. If we could only evaluate Abraham and Sarah's life, you know, up to the time that they were 89 and whatever, 99, 
we said, has God been faithful to his promise to Abraham and to Sarah? If we could only evaluate that based on what we could see at that moment, if that was the whole grid of our experiences, just what we could see, we would have to assume that God had not been faithful to them. But the problem is we can't see the full picture. We would have to, if we were only concluding by what our eyes could tell us, we would have to conclude that God had forgotten about Sarah. But our visible, the visible results do not tell the full picture, do not show God's hand of protection and his gracious plan through it all. The fact is that she is more blessed, and she will always be remembered as more blessed than the slave woman because she was the chosen mother of the promise. So don't focus on earthly results and earthly results only. How do you do that? Well, you envy the wicked. You envy the wicked often. This is the experience and cry of Job in 21. There are a few verses that if you are struggling with this, you want to grow. Here, turn to these this week. So Job 21, 7 to 13. Job is crying out, right? He's suffering. He's in trial. He's saying, why are the wicked prospering? And why am I not doing well? This is the same experience that Jeremiah experiences. Now that Israel is in exile and he's calling out to God, and he sees these nations prospering, and Israel's sufferings. Where are you, God, in this? This is the experience of Asaph in Psalm 73. We'll look at a few verses there, but the question is, does God see? Is he unable to act? But this is your experience too, right? Your eyes betray you. You see what others have, and what you don't have, and you think God has been harsh towards you. You're quick to assume that. You've served God faithfully for many, many years. You've sacrificed much. You've given up for the church and for God. And yet you see him blessing others and not you, and you think all of it was in vain. You let what you see take precedence over what God says. But notice the conclusion of the psalmist, right? Asaph. So let's read Psalm 73. It will be up on your screen. Let me just read a few verses. We read 16 through 19. Actually, I have more, don't I? Before, there's one more Elias before. Thank you. Two to three. Thank you. So he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned her end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In 27, 28, the very end. That's how he concludes. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your good works. Psalm 73, Psalm 37, conclude the same thing. It's not worth it to fret over evildoers. They will fade like rest. They will perish. And so your eyes tell you that they're doing well when, in fact, they're headed to destruction. They're on their way to hell, to suffering forever. 
whatever comfort they are having right now, is so small in comparison to your hope, the hope that you have and you will experience one day. So don't envy the wicked. All right, another example of this is how you evaluate things by what you see. Doesn't it sometimes just feel like the church at large is losing and the world is winning? As you look at society today, doesn't it feel like, especially here in Bloomington, that we're fighting a losing battle? The things are just getting harder for Christians? You're focusing only on what you can't see and not what is true. You feel like God is actually losing the battle when in fact God is always at work and God will never lose and the church will be victorious. And how about this? Doesn't it feel like sometimes our little church is losing? Maybe it's just me, but sometimes it feels like maybe our church here in Bloomington is not prospering. Maybe the way that some of us feel like it should, right? At least as rapidly as we think that it should. We're seeking to be faithful, preaching God's word, and yet we're not prospering like other churches that we see here in town. We see other churches growing and having pastors who aren't sick, and yet here we are by God's providence, and it's like, has God forgotten about us? You know, especially when you compare yourself to other churches who, you know, have hundreds and hundreds of baptisms. How do you respond, right, when you don't see, when you see, well, we're trying to be faithful. God, where are you? Have you turned your back on us too as a church? Your temptation is to be discouraged, right, to start blaming. Well, maybe it's his fault. Maybe something's wrong. And trust me, I know that there's a lot that's wrong in our church, right? Like, that's full well. I, I understand that very, very well. So that's not the point. The point is that we don't evaluate our faithfulness based on numbers, as if that's all that there is. We don't evaluate the mark or the faithfulness of a church just based on the things that we see. You don't see the fruits of the Spirit often clearly. Because if you live by pragmatic results only, you're living by sight and not by faith. Let me think if I have time to tell you this illustration. Mm, I'm going to tell you to you anyways. Um, some of you know Pastor Matt Shockney, right? At FX Church, he's come to preach at our church. Love Matt. I uh, love Pastor Matt. He is just, whenever I see him at Panera working, he's just always so fun to talk to. He always is passionate about something. He's just riled up about something, about the things of God, and it's just so refreshing to talk to him. Well, this week, we were just chatting, and he was telling me this illustration from something that he got an email this week. I asked him if I could tell this illustration here. He said yes. So he got an email from a church that was saying that they had 175 baptisms last week or something like that. Uh, I don't know anything about this, this. I don't know anything other than what I'm telling you. And at first, you know, his thing was, oh, man, that's, that's great, the 175 baptisms. And then he stopped and he started thinking, well, let's think about this. Like, I wonder if I were to go to that church and I would ask them where those 175 people are, like, what would they say? Like, would they know where those 175 people are? Well, if you were to ask a lot of churches today, if, you know, if you have a big baptism service, and then you ask them a year later, it's like, oh, where are those people? Many churches would say, like, oh, actually, we don't know. We don't really know where they went. And that's a problem. Okay, imagine if you asked me how many children I had, and I told you I had 175 children. You'd be like, that's absurd. That doesn't make any sense. I can count one, two, three. And so they ask, well, where are the other 172? And I say, oh, I don't know. Somewhere. 
in the woods, maybe, or, you know, I lost track of them. You would say, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. You're a terrible father, if that's the case, or you're just lying. I love that illustration, right? Because our call is not just to be uh, successful by the world standards. That would be living by sight. Our call is not just to baptize in great numbers, but to actually make true disciples. And that's much harder. That is much, much harder. Trust me, if we wanted to, it would be a lot easier for us to be successful as a church here in Bloomington. Right? We would have to make a lot of compromises to do that. But if we really wanted to grow the church just for the sake of growing the church quickly and impressively, we could do that if we cared about being impressive to the world. But that's not the point. The point is faithfulness to God and trusting that God is the one who will bring the growth. And when you start to really think about it, you do see that God is bringing a lot of growth to our church. Not in the same way that the world thinks, but lasting fruit that is actually sweet and grows in love for one another. So we praise God for that. We trust Him even when we can't see the full picture. If you live by sight, you will end up in a lot of compromises. But we don't sacrifice what God commands at the altar of pragmatism. So again, do you do this? You have many concerns. You have many trials. You have many things where you feel like God needs to step up, and he hasn't. And so you start thinking, maybe I could, my life would be better if I only had this. If my life was more like his or like hers, if I had the thing that he does, that thing that she has, my life would just be better. But do you know better than God? Do you know better than God? Can't you trust that God has put you in this position with what you have for a specific reason? That God has given you that difficult spouse, that difficult husband, that difficult wife for a good reason. And trust him. Don't trust what your eyes can see. Your life would actually not be better outside of God's will. God has done it for your good. The truth is, if you only live by sight, husbands, you're never going to correct your wives. Christians, you'll never do the hard work of reconciliation. You're never going to rebuke someone in their sin. You're not gonna, never going to share the gospel with unbelieving friends. Because if you only care about results, you know that people will turn down the gospel. And I know you get it, but I want you to just press on on this. The Galatians got this too for a second, and they deserted the gospel, right? They were doing well. In church, you have been doing well. And a lot of you start really well. You have good principles you're attached to, you're committed to, and yet a couple weeks go and you kind of drop them. And you lose sight and you, you completely lose hope. You get tired. Things get harder and you just say, well, it's not working. That's living by sight and not by faith. The fact that that difficult relationship has not gotten easier doesn't mean that you stop being faithful to God and doing what he's called you to do. The fact that your husband still hasn't noticed your efforts to be meek and vulnerable doesn't mean that you stop being faithful to God and how he created you. The fact that you're trying to love your wife and she still is not receiving it doesn't mean that you stop loving her. You trust God because God sees what you cannot see. All right? Don't cut the apple tree down in the first year when it hasn't produced fruit. 
Instead, live to see the lasting fruit that may not appear for years, but will last for all of eternity and is sweet to your heavenly Father. So don't live by sight, just focusing on results. Verse 28 in Galatians 4, not Psalm. Read 28 and 29. We just got through one verse. Can you believe that? So just keep pressing on. 28 and 29. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. All right, the point here, verse 29, persecution is a normal experience in a, uh, for the children of the promise. Right? Persecution is normal. It says right here, just as it was time, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Now in Galatians, the time of Galatians is now for us today. So, how was Isaac persecuted? I'm just going to give you Genesis 21.9. tells you this is the time where um, it was uh, Ishmael. It says he laughed, right? And that was the thing that Sarah just hung on to as if, like, he had done something terrible. Clearly, there was more than just a simple innocent laugh. It was more like trying to make fun of, ridicule Isaac, put him down. So that's what Paul is referring to when he says, how was Isaac persecuted? He was persecuted by the fact that the son of the flesh was actually trying to put him down. This is a normal occurrence. How was the Galatian church persecuted? Okay, Galatians 1.7. It says, not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There have been people from the outside coming to the Galatian church and telling them, the gospel that you believe is not a complete gospel. You're missing something. There's more. You're believing in a gospel that is incomplete. The persecution that they're experiencing that eventually caused them to fall away. Now, how are we persecuted? How are you persecuted? Well, the world loves to tell us, right? The love, world loves to tell you that every problem in society today is the Christian's fault, right? The Christianity is the main problem today. That all of society's problems are the Christian's fault. In fact, the survey came out a few years ago. I was just reading and. It says the majority of respondents said that religion is the primary source of most global conflict today. And who is the religion that's most at fault? Obviously, they would say Christianity. We are the problem. Evangelicals today are the issues for everything wrong that you see in the world today. And you're being told that day after day. And people love to say that Christianity outlived its purpose long, long ago. Then now it just hinders progress. They say Christianity is dangerous and poisonous. That it is evangelicals who are a fundamental threat to democracy, right? These are the things that you hear every single day in the news. So what do you do when you hear that? What do you do, here, what do, you do when you're told that what you believe is crazy? And so by extension, if you're actually crazy enough to believe what the Bible says then you're either ignorant or hateful or a bigot or most likely all three of those. What do you do when the world tells you that you are the problem? Get ready to be called an extremist just for believing basic Bible doctrine. Okay, the most basic, basic Bible doctrine, the fact that we care about babies, is already seen as an extreme position in today's world. So if you care about what others think, 
This will be an obstacle to you and your walk with the Lord. Christians, so-called Christians, will persecute you and tell you that you're not worshiping the true God, that you're not being loving because you don't affirm them in their sin. But oftentimes, the hardest and most painful conflict comes closer, right, closer to home. Many of you have had close friends who have said all sorts of evil things against you because of your love for Jesus. Many of you have had dear family members that can quickly become your enemies as you seek to be faithful to God's word. You will be called a monster for upholding biblical discipline with your children. You will be called abusive for your views on men's and women's and their responsibilities. You will be called a bigot or even an anti-Semite now, right? For thinking that there's only one way to be saved. You try to love your family, right? You tell them, no, they shouldn't be living together before marriage. Tell them, no, they shouldn't actually transition. You try to love them with God's word and you end up as the enemy. Many of you have experienced this very closely and personally. So what do you do when your own family becomes your enemy? What do you do when persecution comes from those who are near to you? When it hurts? Again, you remember this is the normal Christian experience. Just as it was then, so also it is now. You're in good company. The patriarchs suffered. Patriarchs suffered. Paul suffered. The Galatian church suffered. But most importantly, Christ suffered. Christ suffered. That's our hope. What does Jesus say in John 15? Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So when people call you all sorts of names and ridicule you for your beliefs, do not be concerned about what they say. What do they know? They wouldn't see the fruits of the Spirit if one fell on their head. Don't be concerned by what the wicked call you. Luther says it this way, As long as we preach Christ and confess him to be our Savior, we must be content to be called vicious troublemakers. Vicious troublemakers. That's what you are. That's who you are. All right? Get used to it. Because your hope, our hope as Christians, is in the fact that Jesus suffered first. He was persecuted to the point of crucifixion. He was tried as a filthy criminal. Jesus, the Holy One, the Innocent One, the One who took on the sins of the world, was accused as a criminal. And he suffered so that the insults of the world would not have an effect on you. All right, what man thinks of you is no longer of concern to you because man cannot change your position with God. No word can cause you to fall if you stand with your Savior. To remember that the world has a problem with you standing with God's word. Their problem is ultimately not with you. It's with God. Jesus continues in John 15 saying, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name 
because they do not him do not know him who sent me. So don't take the world seriously. When you see persecution, that does not mean that you're doing something wrong. Often it means that you're doing something very right. Don't live by just what you can see, by the fact that you want a comfortable life without trial, without persecution. That is living by sight. Remember, you have the approval of the God of the universe because of what Christ has done for you. God has not abandoned you in persecution. Next time you have opposition from your family, God has not deserted you. We have a hope that the wicked don't. Amen? We have a hope that the wicked don't. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Let me just read 31 too. For brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What is the end of the wicked? Desolation. They will be cast out. Just like the slave Hagar and her son, the sons of the flesh will be cast out. They were cast out. The wicked will perish. They will not inherit with the sons of the promise. You may not receive the fullness of what God has promised to you now, but you will experience it in ways that you don't even know. Because you know and you trust that though the wicked will be cast out forever, they will not inherit it with you. You will never be cast out. And that is your hope. No one can take away your inheritance. You have a hope that cannot be shaken. Those who trust in themselves will have no hope. Their joy is perishing quickly. Your joy is coming into fullness more and more clearly. And so when it seems like the world is doing well, remember they're slaves. Remember their end. And remember your hope. Your hope is that no matter what comes to you, because of what Christ has done for you, you can rejoice and you can sing knowing that you're safe in your Father's arms and that you stand secure. And so church, live by faith and not by sight. Let us pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for this hope that we have through Jesus. Thank you that it is a living hope. Lord, that you have not abandoned your people, that you are at work, that you are growing each and one of us as we commit ourselves to you. Father, would you help us not to be distracted by the things that we see that often seem to be in opposition to your word or to your promises? Would we actually evaluate things more clearly based on what you say and who you are more than what we think? Lord, would you help us to see that we evaluate things poorly? We lack perspective. We lack insight. So, Lord, would you do a work in our hearts that only you can do? Would you help us to trust you when things don't seem quite like they should be. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have and for Jesus and what he's done for us. And we praise him this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.